I have massively rushed to get here right on time. <laughs> I had to get my $6 coffee before I got started. Uh, who's here? Stefan is here. He's uh, taking a break from critiquing my crappy code. Thank you, Stefan. <laughs> I have excuses for that too, mate. I'm, gonna explain. I'm trying to get my shoes off because I've literally uh, rushed home and run upstairs. Uh, after doing the school... I'm going to get this shoe off. After doing the school run thing, and then, of course, really, really needing coffee because it has been one of those weeks, uh, I did did rush through a data breach today as well, which is uh, which is interesting because I've had a couple of emails from people. In fact, I think the breach itself... Oh, let's pull this off. <laughs> I think the breach itself was, uh, was kind of interesting for... For the wrong reasons, for the why can't these people just reply to my emails reasons, but I feel like that is an old story by now on this uh, on this live stream, <laughs> in this life I find myself in. Okay, now we're organised. Shoes are off. Very good. Who else is here? Stephen. Two for the press one. Try update on a Lars video. That's been an hour of each other. Stephen... Uh, Someone call that a jackpot. Okay. Uh, so says, shouldn't run in the house, as my parents always say. I ran in with, with two coffees. I, <laughs> I threw one at Charlotte. I gave one to Charlotte and uh, and I ran straight into here. But yes, that, that would that would be preferable. The house is full of people. I, I, I think finally finishing our kitchen and our garage today. 99% today. I think it's going to be one tiny little bit left um left tomorrow or Monday. But I'll finally be able to like share photos of the, of the finished stuff. They're doing the, uh, the the stone that goes onto the, the kitchen bench and in a couple of other places. So this epic, which began, I think, around January, looks like we might finally be at the end of it, which would be really nice. Seth says, I've seen worse code. I mean, Scott writes PHP. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, I do have excuses. I do have excuses, but I'll explain them to you later on. Let's jump into the... Into the usual bit, sponsor, sponsor this week is Collide. Usually no surprise that Collide is a sponsor. Unpatched devices keeping you up at night. Collide can get your entire fleet updated in days. It's device trust for Okta. Watch the demo. Collide has priced some demo here. A whole bunch of stuff here about achieving your zero trust uh, in, in an environment where you might have the likes of Okta running as well. Uh, and of course, zero trust is a topic that comes up all the time. At the moment, it came up the other day, even in my own home, because someone was making comments about, not about my home in particular, I got leaked, leaked, linked into the into the discussion about the potential exposed Ethernet port behind a doorbell. Anyway, go and check out Clyde. Massive thanks to them. Let me just finish on the, the doorbell thing, because it, it it kind of bugged me a little bit in in the way that it has no consequence whatsoever in my life. However, someone on the internet was wrong, and that upset me. And the premise was effectively, uh, it's someone I know, uh, some of you know, he posted one of the little uh, little phone SIM card poppy outy things, you know, the paper clip with a handle on it, uh, and said, this is all that stands between me and your network if you're running Ethernet to your doorbell. And I said, well, first of all, there's also 16,000 kilometres between you and my doorbell because you're in the UK. So, you know, there's there's that. Uh Distance is a tyranny. Plus, even if he lived here 
in the same city. It's like you have to be willing to come to my door and stand outside my door in front of the camera, which is recording, and start taking it all apart in front of all the neighbours without someone coming over and stopping you. And also, I'm pretty sure that's illegal somewhere. I'm not sure. So you have to be willing, you know, like all that stopping you, okay, the 16,000 kilometres, the needing to be physically present, the having the bravado to do that, which of course some people do. There are physical penetration testers out there that do precisely this sort of thing. He'd put on a high-vis vest and a hat that says electrician or something like that. But it would still be illegal. Like there's still that problem. And then, of course, there's the question of, well, why do you have the doorbell and the camera and the recording over the Ethernet in the first place? Well, it's because we're worried about the kids. Like, this is what we're actually worried about. I listened to uh, an episode of uh, The Risky Biz Between Two Geeks the other day, and they were talking about juice jacking. So you know how juice jacking seems to be in the news every now and then? It's this premise where if you take your phone and plug it into a public charging port, inevitably USB port, you run the risk of someone taking over your phone. Now, the guys were sort of saying, this has almost certainly never actually happened. <laughs> but, it's, but it's often in the news for all sorts of reasons. The need to be physically present, the need to exploit some uh, as yet unpatched zero day within a device that would actually allow you to do that. And then to to then burn that capability by putting it in a public place. So, like it just, it didn't make any sense. I said, you know, you don't hear about a lot at the moment, ATM card skimmers. And they're a real thing, right? Like they're a real problem. So I think there's this whole thing about the perception of what we should be concerned about versus the reality. Uh, and that is why I'm not too concerned about my IoT doorbell. Plus, of course, we have the ability to VLAN. And I got there from the zero trust thing, what happens when someone is on your network? Because that's the assumption that you have to work to as well. Yeah. Hmm. Ben, just making my pour over. Very nice. Uh, now, <laughs> most of my week has gone on dealing with, uh, with the domain search subscription stuff. For have I been paying? And I, I honestly didn't give too much thought to exactly what I was going to talk about today. So I said lessons from two weeks of the new HLBP subscription service, and then there's a bit about Splunk. And I look, I'll, I'll start with the first bit. Uh, and I, I hadn't sort of decided exactly what to talk about, so I thought I'll just raise some of the stuff that keeps coming up through the, the tickets at the moment. Uh, and I had a couple of emails this morning as well. One I've read, uh, and another one I haven't read, and I thought... Without naming the people, we'll read them here. <laughs> so I might have to eyeball it first just to make sure it's appropriate. But there's some interesting issues that have been raised. So obviously there's now a subscription charge to search the largest domains. Uh, now, that's the 40% of the largest domains. So just to, to very, very briefly recap, uh, domain searches were something that became a combination of expensive plus valuable to the folks that are actually using it and we're paying for them all. Now, we took the 60% of the smallest domains that are being actively monitored in Have I Been Pwned and we went, that's it, they're free. That's up to 10 breached accounts, not including spam lists, including spam lists. Uh, and then the next 10%, we priced at one of these per month. And this is literally <laughs> my local hard coffee. It's six Australian dollars. That's about four US dollars. Uh, priced at one of those a month because the rationale there is for the most part, most people understanding their exceptions in different socioeconomic grades in different parts of the world 
for the most part, most people in this industry using a feature like that wouldn't think too much about buying a cup of coffee. I did have someone send me a message as uh, part of, as a fact, I think it's uh, it's on a discuss uh, comment on my blog post, as part of their, I guess, displeasure with putting a price on it. And they said they pay 25 cents for their cup of coffee. <laughs> now, <laughs> I did reply to it, not in the way I originally wanted to, but I was originally like, well, in my brain. I was like, well, that's great, but you're not paying to run the services. <laughs> it's like I'm paying to run the services and I pay $6 for a cup of coffee. So there was that. The other thing was, and I did end up saying this in the response, I have had a 25-cent cup of coffee before. You usually get what you put. Like I can picture, I can picture exactly what it is. <laughs> it's going to be like some of those things has been sitting on the top of the stove for like three hours in like a shitty cafe somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the US, and it's been dripping into there, and it's probably in like a cup about that big as well. So no, no, that's that's not the greatest example. Hmm. Now, the things that have been coming up been a, f- a few interesting things. So one one of the things that's that's come up quite a bit is uh, EDU nonprofit NGOs charities, and my initial feeling on all of this was that let, let's take the EDU thing. The assertion here is that a school, for example, is constrained by resources, and in many cases that is true. There are also cases where that is not true, and I say that with two kids going to schools that are very, very well resourced. Now, I don't know where all of you are in the world, but uh, in some parts of the world, like in Norway, the, the idea of, of, of school is that everyone goes to the same school. In fact, Charlotte regularly says it doesn't matter if you're like the pauper or the prince, like everybody goes to the same school, unless it's an international school or, or something outside the mainstream. In Australia and in places like the UK, and we've basically inherited everything from the British, thanks for that, guys, we, we have... Uh, unfortunately, a two-tiered school system. And I, I say unfortunately because I like the idea of the Norway thing, where everybody gets the same opportunity and the same education. Circumstances here are that we have public schools, which are free to go to, and we have private schools, which are not free. Those schools, depending on where they are, some of them are like the really expensive ones in, in, say, Sydney, you're looking at up to $40,000 Australian a year to send a child. Now, that is... Almost thirty thousand US for the folks over there. About fifteen thousand, about twenty thousand GBP, and that is that is insane. Anyway, my point is, is that some of these EDUs are very, very well resourced. Uh, nonprofits, charities, so on and so forth. Obviously, the assertion here is that first of all, if they're an official registered nonprofit or charity, depending on where they are in the world, they may have tax exemption status, and they may get all sorts of other benefits to help them do what they do to help the community, which of course is a very good objective. The challenge with all these things is you're still sitting on a whole bunch of data, no matter what your entity is. Uh, if we're looking at the number of email addresses and breaches, they still have to sit there in storage. They still get returned by functions and use bandwidth and all the rest of it. Like it doesn't matter the nature of the organization, like the overheads are consistent regardless. We, we've ended up, the way we've approached it is there's a KB on support.haveabeenpwned.com, which says, look, if you're in one of these groups, submit a ticket. 
And, and we do have a model that we're applying to these that make it significantly easier by a large order of magnitude to get access to their data. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about what it is publicly at the moment. I've, I've spoken this, about this with a few people that the concern we quite honestly have is that if you're too public about the, the nature of the concessions that you give an organisation, you start to open the floodgates to many other organisations of different types that aren't charities, that aren't schools, that might be much more on that fringe of should we, shouldn't we, popping up and saying, well, hey, because of the nature of our business, you know, we're a, a startup or we're open source or we're something else that appeals to the, the sense of wanting to support them but is on that borderline and then suddenly we're doing all of these manual tickets because they're all a manual thing and it's just Charlotte and I handling them too, makes it very, very hard. The, the feedback at the moment is that the model that we've put in place seems to hit the sweet spot. It's a, it's a very reasonable thing. It doesn't bring the cost to zero, but it significantly reduces it. It seems to be the, the reasonable amount to, to put on that and the process of having them submit a ticket so that we can go and look at them and go, well, are you actually an EDU? <laughs> you know, or are you, hey, I don't know, something outside that scope? So far, fortunately, everyone that we've had submitted has been pretty cut and dry. You know, so yeah, well... There's your website. I see school children. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. So that uh, that helps a lot. Now, reading some of the comments here, James Drinkwater. There's a school near me that's up to £12,000 per term. Now, James, is that four terms a year? Because I think it's semesters, which are a half year. But if that's £48,000, holy crap. Wow. Yeah, you got to wonder, haven't you? Jeez. And the thing is, is like as a parent as well, we've got to pay that after tax. <laughs> so I don't know where you are in your part of the world, but in Australia, uh, the folks that are paying anywhere near that sort of money are already paying almost half their gross in tax. So by my numbers, that would be £48,000 a year, which means you're having to earn somewhere close to £100,000 a year off your income. Well, that's three, three terms at Oxford. Well, it's still £36,000 a year. Like that's, Wow. Okay, there's a whole other discussion there about whether that makes sense and whether that's in the community best interest or not, but <laughs> we don't have time for that today. That's one of the ones that's come up. Now, there's two others that have come up that that I sort of expected might be there, but came up much more frequently than, than what I thought, so we had, to, we had to figure out how to deal with it. And those two things are wanting to pay by means well, actually, there's three. Wanting to pay by means other than credit card, which Stripe predominantly provides credit card services. Uh, needing to have uh, an invoice before payment is made and being a reseller. Now, let me do these in reverse order because the reseller one I feel most passionate about. During my time inside at Pfizer, I think is the right way to put it. It felt like doing time. During my 14 years at Pfizer, one of the world's largest companies, $200 billion company even to this day. Every time we wanted to buy something, in fact, I put this in the blog post, didn't I, when I announced this, uh, when I announced the uh, domain search subscription stuff. Every time we wanted to buy something, it had to go through a procurement process, a very formal process. It made it very hard to purchase, for argument's sake, a cup of coffee outside of if it was like a corporate, uh, if you were, say, traveling, you could submit an expense report, and yes, I had coffee while I was away or something. But if it was something that, like a piece of software or a service, an HIBP subscription key, purchasing it was extraordinarily painful. 
And one of the things I wanted everyone to do is to use resellers. In fact, in particular, and this is, I'm going to use this name because it's come up a lot, Software House International, SHI. Now, the way it looked to us from the inside, and I think the way it looks to most people, let's put it in the have I been pwned context. Someone says, look, um, I would like to get a, let's say, pwned to subscription. I need to spend $15 a month to be able to search these domains. Two and a half of these <laughs> a month. Oh, hang on, no, that's US dollars. Nearly four of these a month. Um, now, you could just go and put your credit card in and purchase it, and then you'd have everything straight away, and you'd be searching your domains in less time than I've already taken to explain this. But the corporates like Pfizer would say, no, you have to go to a reseller. It's SHI. You have to buy it from them. And, and part of the reason why they're doing it is they, they establish these sort of single points of relationship with the reseller, and then the reseller is the one that goes out and establishes all the relationships with the different places that you're purchasing from. I'm, I'm sure there is some accounting principle where that makes sense, but every other fibre in my body thinks that this is ridiculous. <laughs> Having been the person who regularly has to go through and try and purchase stuff and you get routed down the reseller path, it is infuriating. But that's the way companies work. And for everyone who reaches out to me, and if you're listening to me and you're this person, you have my sympathies because I have walked in your shoes for many, many years. I'm not upset with you. It's the environment that you work in that makes this absolutely infuriating. We're all stuck with it. What do we do? So what we've done for the reseller piece is we've said, look, if you're a reseller, first of all, we're not discounting just because you're a reseller. Like we don't get to like discount and then you mark it up and then the customer still pays it. Like it, it is what it is. It's priced super, super cheap for a reason so that we don't have to have these discussions. So if you want to pwn to it 15 bucks a month, then that's what it is. It's 15 bucks a month. Uh, next, go and log a ticket. Log a ticket provides some info and, and the info effectively boils down to who is the subscriber? So we need to know the subscriber. And the reason we need to know the subscriber is we need to know what are the domains within the scope of their subscription. Because if it was me at Pfizer, it's like, okay, well, there's Pfizer.com and there's WarnerLambert.com and there's all these other acquisitions and things. Uh, I need to go and set up my domain search dashboard, go through the verification process, and then say, hey, Software House International, this is my email address. Go and submit a ticket for Have I Been Pwned. Give them my email address. All the billing goes to you guys. But we need that information to set you up. So we have a model. We have a model to work with resellers. We pushed this out a couple of days ago. We're getting tickets related to that. We've also said, because we have to go through this, this laborious process of getting the ticket, we actually have to go into Stripe and create the customer manually. We have to raise the invoice manually. Uh, I think there are probably ways of automating this later on at the moment, it's manual. We have to go and do all of that. We're not gonna do that for $3.50. Uh, it, it just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I said, look, we'll do that for annual subscriptions of Pwn 3 or Pwn 4, which I think seems perfectly reasonable. So far, no one has, has disagreed with that premise. So that's resellers. The other one was folks who want an invoice before paying. Now, there is a, a simplistic beauty to, to the way the service works when at the moment you go and you enroll your domains and you go, I need a subscription and then it goes to Stripe and you just put your credit card in and Stripe processes the card and then they send a webhook call back to have I been pwned which says activate the subscription, you're good to go, job done. It's lovely, it's beautiful, it's all over in 
like literally less than 60 seconds. When you invoice, you end up sort of prolonging that period. So we do have a model for invoicing similar to the reseller thing where you're going to need a logger ticket, but the way it works is you're going to have a been pwned, you set up your domain searches just like you always would. And then when you're ready to purchase, you log a ticket and you say, look, this is the email address I'm using. This is the subscription I want. We go through to Stripe and we manually create the customer. We set up all the tax and everything else. Uh, and then we send an invoice to that person. So now they've got this invoice. When they pay that invoice, Stripe raises an event. It's like invoice.paid, raises an event. That calls have a been pwned and says, now activate the subscription. So it was actually a no-code solution, which was great because it's all just done in Stripe. So we have a model to do that. Uh, your subscription won't work until you pay the money. Right? Like We're not going to have one of these models where it's like, send an invoice and our payment terms are 90 days and we would like everything to work right now, please, and then in 90 days we'll send you some money, honest. Uh, no, look, if you want invoicing, that's the way it works. And you need to decide how urgent it is for you to get access to the search results. If you need to get it faster than your 90 days, well, easy, it's like pay the damn bill. And look, again, tangentially, I'm sure there is an accounting principle somewhere which talks about why bills should be paid really late and why we need 60-day terms or 90-day terms or something like that. But as the little guy providing the service, it sucks. Which is why, for the case of like all the tradies downstairs now, if they send us the bill at three o'clock, we will have paid it by four o'clock because those people are dependent on that money to go about their lives and feed their families and buy their materials uh, and this big corporate thing of just delaying things to the max. Um, you can do that, but you just don't get the service until you pay the bill. Seems fair. Now, the third thing, working backwards, was credit cards versus other mechanisms. Now, first of all, one of the, the joys of Stripe, and incidentally, I am an absolute Stripe fanboy. I think Stripe is amazing, what they've built. There's only one exception, and I'll explain that after I finish explaining the good bits. But one of the lovely bits about Stripe is that it's not just credit card processing. Obviously, that's what they're known for. They do the processing, they validate the car, they do all the fraud detection, they allow you to have subscriptions and recharge and send receipts and invoices. They do all that. It's wonderful. There is also Google Pay. There is also Apple Pay. And yeah, sure, that might be backed by a credit card, but a lot of people would rather like double-click the button on the side of their phone and you know, pay that way. You can do that. Stripe also has virtual bank accounts. And the way the virtual bank account works is you can enable this for an invoice such that an invoice gets issued, they click the link to go and pay it, and now there's banking details. So you can do wire transfer if you want. Until you do that wire transfer, the subscription have I been pwned won't be active. So it's the same as the thing I just spoke about, where it's like, yeah, we, we can do this. If you really want to do it the old manual laborious way, then that's, that's fine. That's up to you guys. You just got to decide how fast you want to do it because nothing works until you actually pay for the service. All right, that was the three things. Let me have a look at the comments. Oh, that was a Stripe thing. The one Stripe thing that I think is a massive blind spot and I want to get this through to the people at Stripe as well. Their webhook model, for the most part, is lovely. I'm going to go and have a look if my webhooks are working now because I'm going somewhere with this. For the most part, the webhook model 
is lovely, where there's all of these different events that can happen in Stripe. When one of the events happens, they will make a callback to an API of your choice, sending data about the event. So for example, if I go and have a look in my developers section just here, and I go into the webhooks link, and I've got one URL endpoint that handles three different events, customer.subscription.deleted, customer.updated, invoice.paid, because they are the three events where something needs to actually happen in my system. Uh, for example, customer.subscription.deleted. If you delete the subscription, we've got to not renew it later on. If you pay the invoice, we've got to say that you've paid it and then extend the period that either your, your API key or your access to domain searches last. The gap here is when you have a webhook that fails, there is no easy way to know about it. Now, let me put this in context because I'm looking at my failure log here. I pushed a change the other day broke the webhooks for subscribers who were there before November last year. And the way I broke it is that every product in Stripe has the metadata that explains the RPM, the request per minutes of the subscription. So for example, the, the $3.50 a month subscription is 10 RPM. Prior to November, it used to be 40. RPM. Now we discontinued 40 and then went, well, everyone on 40 basically gets 10. I left the old product in Stripe with the 40 and then I added like the, the 10, the 50, the 100 and the 500. And then as I was rolling out code over the last couple of weeks, I went, there's, there's still a lot of places where I'm hacking around the 40, you know, if 40, then do this. And I thought what I'd do is I would remove all of the references to 40 and just leave it as 10. So everywhere in Stripe, I went through and I changed the metadata of the legacy 40 RPM product. I changed it to 10. Everywhere in Have I Been Pwned, I updated any records that said you should be on 40 to 10. Anywhere there was code which said if 40, then treat as 10. I changed. And I went about my business. <laughs> and a couple of days later, I looked at the webhooks failure rate and they'd just gone through the roof because what seems to be happening here is that even if you change the RPM on a product, it, or, or rather a metadata attribute on the product, it seems to have somehow persisted the old metadata attribute. So we had the webhook saying, hey, this person's just paid for 40 RPM product and have a Ben Pone going, I got no idea what that is because Troy's deleted all the references to it. Uh, lots of failures, and I only learned about it because I was just meticulously going through looking at all the signals and everything on the various systems, making sure stuff works. There is no way... This is based on both my research and my chat with Stripe on their Discord channel. There is no way to raise an event when a webhook fails. There is no API to query a list of recently failed events. And the best they could suggest is that if you go through like every single event and you look at whether or not there's any retries pending or something like that, you can discover whether a webhook's been failing. Stripe, <laughs> you need a trigger in there somewhere which out of band of the webhook itself, so you know, not calling the same API, can do something like send an email. You've had a spike in failed webhook callbacks uh, or you've had a failed web, like, like configure it, give people options. But not knowing when this fails and not having a way to know just feels sucky and very out of step with everything else you do, which is super, super awesome. Okay, comments, 
going back to what do I miss here? Uh, ben, his specialty pour over <laughs> works out at about a dollar ten, but I don't have to include my time and experience, which is the expensive part. And this this is the thing. Like if if I go downstairs and make a coffee, I buy a big bag of beans that I think is a I think it's less than fifty Aussie dollars, and that will last like a week and a half between the two of us, and then when we have friends and guests and things. Yeah, so that works out at, 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 I would say, yeah, about the same as you, Ben, a dollar. Different when you go down to a cafe and they've got overheads and they've got staff, and the reason why I do it, even though I've got a coffee machine here, is it gets me out of the house and I get to actually talk to other humans, not just randos on <laughs> YouTube like you guys. Uh, where else? What do we get to here? Um, Joel. In crunch descriptions for my new teams, having to go through reseller just made it so hard, especially for renewals. And the thing is, Joel, you're, you're the me from Pfizer only, geez, it's actually more than eight years ago now. Uh, we have shared the pain, right? But now that I'm providing the system that targets people like you and I, we've got to, you know, I, I, I want to ease the pain as much as is possible. Timok1977 says, I've been thinking about the data gathering and selling of data. Can you please comment on how we use in a situation where more information is gathered about us than ever was in East Germany? Uh, and he goes on, he or she goes on, how is that Google allows simple calculator type apps that need access to all my data? Sure, uh, you know, such as contacts, phone, images. Surely they'd want to maintain a monopoly on gathering that info. <laughs> it's like, why is Google allowing other people to siphon up my data? Don't they want to siphon it all up themselves? Um, look, someone else may be able to comment on on are there any controls in, in say, the, the Google Play Store when someone submits an app that's a calculator and needs access to your contacts? Are there any controls around that? Certainly, me living in an iOS world, anytime you try and install an app like that, you get prompts all over the place. You see all of those, uh, all of the, the things they want to access in the app store itself. As an end user, you can decide what to do, although I would argue that most people, when faced with a prompt, Look for the button which makes the prompt go away as fast as possible, which probably means just giving up their data. I, I agree with you. I, I think that's a very good question. I would love to see. It's almost like um, uh, a code of conduct for the app stores where they say, look, um, we're, we're just going to start rejecting stuff that asks for permissions to things it really doesn't need. You know, the canonical flashlight app or fart generator that needs to your geolocation and stupid stuff like that. James says, invoice people suck. <laughs> okay, well put. You make a good argument, James. I know people that just won't deal with them. And honestly, James, this, this was my initial gut reaction. It was like, screw you guys. It's like, we have made this so easy and you've just come along and tried to make it as hard as possible. Yeah, screw you, good luck, too bad. But again, the, the issue I have with that is that I'm, I'm talking to the people that were me those eight years ago who just want to do their job and see use and value in a service. And prior to this rollout, they could have done all of that, not because their company had a good policy, but because it was just freely available. And now we have put a barrier to entry there. We're, we're very conscious of that. So I want to make it as easy as possible on these people. And I guess what we're trying to do at the moment is, is just find where that sort of happy path is, where we'll give you the ability to do things like invoicing, but we're trying to not make it burdensome on us. 
because frankly we need more free time in our lives and, and not less. So our lives are dominated by not just have I been poem, but all of the speaking and events and things. Incidentally, I'll be in Sydney next week for Cloudflare Connect, if anyone is there. So, yeah. James says, I used to work for a company that had its phones cut off more than once. The phone company was all automated, and every time we'd find the phone bill awaiting sign-off on the desk of the person on holes. And this is the way it works with Have I Been Pwned as well. So if you do not pay when your subscription is due, there's a little bit of buffer in there just in case something's gone wrong with the, the pipes and the cybers. Incidentally, that Stripe thing I mentioned just before, that's why there's buffer. So there's, there's buffer so that if I screw something up or if it just takes people a bit longer to find their card or something like that or get back from holes and find the bill, they have a little bit of grace, a little bit of leeway. But yeah, it's like if, if you don't pay the bill, you normally get cut off. Joel says, question. Do Aussie tradies try the same trick as Brit ones and try and demand 50% upfront for materials? We haven't had that experience. The, the relationship we've had with tradies here is mostly uh, progress payments. So let's say the builders that are doing lots of different stuff, you know, every week, for example, they'd, they'd send us a bill. But I imagine there are part of the reason tradies do that. A little bit like we so have I been paying, like you've got to pay the bill before you get access to the data. I imagine they've had to deal with a lot of people that just don't pay the bills. Um, I think, and this doesn't work in the digital world, but with the folks downstairs, there's got to be a happy balance somewhere where they get paid because they have all sorts of overheads in terms of material and things like that. I mean, they're down there cutting out like stone that's been cut out of a mountain somewhere. Uh, that is costly. Totally fair we pay for that. But also, I don't want to pay for everything until it's all done and we're happy with it because then you have no leverage. Stefan says, would be nice if they have a webhook for failed webhook. Yeah, exactly. See, so that's why I say it's got to be out of band. I'd love to have, uh, mind you, you could always have a total, let, let's say it was us. We could go, well, let's just stand up an AWS-based webhook or something and then send an email if, uh, if the primary one fails. But yeah, having an, an out-of-band email just seems to be the most obvious thing. James, does Stripe try again if it gets anything other than 200 or 201? Yes, they do. Uh, in fact, if I have a look here, let's let's see. I, I do have a couple of failed webhooks here since um, I had one fail yesterday, 5.33 a.m. Response says HTTP status code timed out. Now, I don't know why it timed out. It might have been my end. It might have been Cloudflare. It might have been something in between. But it would have then retried after that. There is a point where it stops retrying. So when I had all these failures on the 15th, if I hover my mouse over one of these, uh, eventually you get a little icon across. It says, this webhook delivery failed. All automatic retries have been exhausted. No more attempts to deliver this event will be made, but there's a little resend button that you can go and uh, click if you want to try and manually resend it yourself. Now, let me try and position that window back now that I've moved it out of the way. Let's have a look. James says, uh, I'm not just a rando. I'm also quite strange. Yeah, fair enough. Stephen Jones, don't know if you missed my question earlier. Any thoughts about the very long delayed disclosure for the UK electoral register last week? I did see that. Uh, first of all, you guys are punching above your weight at the moment. There are so many UK data breaches. It's... Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But then again, we had a good, a good run for about six months there from September last year. So 
So my understanding is, is that they discovered that data leak in about October last year, and they obviously only reported, I think it was during, during this week. It sounds like they had just not figured out where it was leaking from. That's That, that was my reading of it. Uh, and until they were confident they knew what was going on, they weren't going to disclose. It also sounds like it's fairly publicly available data anyway. And I, I suspect that what really gets at headlines is electoral. The fact that it's data related to voters and the insinuation there is that this could somehow affect elections or something like that. So I think it got more headlines than what it was due, but I also agree that October through to now is, is just way, way, way too long. Um, and it would be interesting to know exactly why it took that long. James says, the problem in Google Apps now is versioning, where Google approves the app and then the creator adds malware after approval. It does also still require someone to approve permissions. You would think that every submission to the App Store has to go through some sort of approval process for precisely that reason. Brian says, I use Stripe, so I do get emails already when Webhook fails. Not sure why, how I get them, and you don't. Well, Brian, if you can figure it out, please let me know. Because like I said, I've literally been asking on the, on the Discuss um, uh, Discourse channel as well, and I have not been able to get an answer to that. James says, that probably makes sense. If, you, uh, if enough calls fail, the retries would end up uh, thrashing your API. It's not just that, but otherwise... Stripe ends up endlessly sending recalls. I mean, they could end up in effectively an infinite loop as well. So I, I totally agree with the limited number of retries. Ben would probably end up scraping uh, the buttons once a day to automate the retry. Yeah, I know. But we shouldn't have to because they have such a good API too. Uh, and Stephen says it was the full register rather than the public role as well. Okay, well, again, question still stands. I think more transparency on these things. Now, I said I'd read a couple of emails because I had a couple of people contact me just today. Uh, in fact, let's talk about the data breach I just loaded because it's it's after that. That is painful. There is a service called iMenu360, and this appears to be an ordering platform that other people then use to sell their roast chicken, for example, or whatever it might be that your your shop sells. Now, someone reached out to me recently and said, he has been trying to get in touch with this organization since April and has not been able to get anything from them. And there is a data set with about 3.4 million people in it. Can I help? And I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a go. And I'll give it enough good goes that eventually if it doesn't work, then I'll load the data to have I been pwned and I'll email a bunch of my subscribers and inevitably then they will pay some attention. Um, so I gave it a go. Now I've spoken so many times before, I'm just trying to find my tweet here about it. I've spoken so many times before about the attempts I make for disclosure and just how difficult disclosure is. So I started with the really obvious stuff. It's like, go to the website, find contact information. Okay. Well, there's a, there's an email address, email them. This was four days ago. I also contacted them via their Facebook page. And I also reached out on LinkedIn to the owner slash president. Nothing. Give it a couple of days on the Twitter. Anyone got a security contact at? Someone began a chat session with them, had engagement, so response from what looked like a human, not just a chatbot. And this person said, hey, you want to reply to Troy's emails? Like, this is who he is. It's legit. 
Now, this I think was about either two or three days ago, nothing. Then I reached out to two other people on LinkedIn. I'm basically just going through everyone on LinkedIn that works for the company that has some degree of connection to me. I reached out to someone whose title was founder and someone else whose title was operations manager. Nothing. Nothing from anyone. Meanwhile, there's 3.4 million people in there, about 30,000 of which were my subscribers. I think the numbers were about 21,000 individual subscribers and about 9,000 subscribers monitoring domains. That went out at the time of recording probably about an hour and a half ago. In response to that, I've had some emails because, of course, there are some people here who have now gone to search their domain and the penny has dropped that now there's a subscription model. Now, again, 60% of domains, it makes no difference. 10% of domains, it's a cup of coffee, and then it goes up a bit from there. So one person here has said, um, I'm going to read this and then just catch myself. I'm not going to disclose their name or anything, but I might just send them this piece of video later on just to try and reply to their, their situation here. So this person says, uh, I'm in your 316 catch-all domains. Uh, yes, I'm the proverbial user as a catch-all domain and use spam-tagged accounts to track which vendors or vendors of my vendors, which is the 360 thing, are leaking my information so that I can black hole the address. I don't think $4 US is unreasonable. Annually, rather than monthly. <laughs> Might I buy you a coffee per year? Also, while I've never used the address iMenu360 at their domain, I have used quite a few mom-and-pop dining establishments, online ordering systems, have no idea which one used iMenu360 for their services. Uh, he then goes on, I know there'll be individuals with catch-all domains that have ended up in a couple of dozen data breaches, and I think paying $3.95, which is what it will go up to in uh, November, to see them is unreasonable, uh, and they think paying that is unreasonable. Well, I mean, there's an easy answer to it if you think it's unreasonable. Don't, don't pay it. <laughs> so I'm not holding a gun to your head. The other thing that I'd add here, um, so yeah, again, it's like 60% of domains are outside the scope of any commercial structure anyway. And then there's this small number, which are the cup of coffee a month, which seems to be his category. Um, there's a couple of options here. If you get a notification to your domain... You can always just go to the front page and search for iMenu360 at and then see if you get a hit because you can still do email address searches from the front page, no problems. Nothing changes there. The other option, and I, I replied to someone who sent me, um, uh, who posted a comment of I discussed on my blog post the other day. They said, look, I'm only in like one data breach a year. Why do I have to pay, you know, say, $35 a year? I said, well, well, you don't. Wait until you get the notification, and then just pay for a month. And then you're literally paying one coffee and then unsubscribe. And then maybe you don't get another one for another year. So you don't have to keep an annual subscription going. You'll still get the notifications. Notifications go to everyone. Or you do what I just said and just go to the front page and search the email address. So they, these little edge cases like this, I, I know that that's like one more step, but it's not stopping people from finding what they need to know. Um... This one's a long one. I'll have to read that later on. But anyway, like that's that's the sort of where I fall on that. It's it's either cheap enough and irregular enough that it doesn't matter, or you can find out for free anyway. And really, the, the only entities that need to start paying are the ones who are like, look, we're actually a business with multiple employees. We don't know which one was in that breach. Okay, well, now you can 
pay a cup of coffee. That seems reasonable. And I, th I think I said in the blog post, it's like reasonable is a very subjective thing. Not everyone will agree. You may not agree. I understand that. I appreciate that. I'm just saying that this, this is where we've landed up with all the research in the world in order to get us that point. Um, right. Let me talk about one more thing, because the other breaches really aren't that, that noteworthy. Uh, what is noteworthy is the Splunk integration that Brett Adams did. Now, I love the fact that APIs allow other people to build amazing things. Now, if you're listening to this, you're probably a tech person. You know what APIs are. So I don't have to go through and rehash the whole thing. But uh, a local Aussie guy, Brett Adams, who I found out later on was so local that he was very close to me. So I went and bought him a coffee. $6 coffee during the week and gave him some stickers. A super nice guy. He's a Splunk MVP uh, and he built a Splunk integration, a Splunk app as they call it, put it in the Splunk app store, which brings all of that domain search data up into the Splunk dashboard, which is where so many InfoSec people live. And what I really love about it is you get all of these really cool graphs and charts and things like this. He said there are two other APIs that would actually help make this thing better. One is an API to tell you what sort of level of subscription you have, and another is an API to list the domains that you're currently monitoring. Because if he had those APIs, someone could just put their API key in, we could hit the domain to, or rather hit the API to list the domains they're monitoring, and then put them all on the dashboard, automatically. And that's what we did. And it's out there and it's live. And that's, that's about all there is to it. But he's got some really cool visualizations in the charts there as well. And I'd encourage you, if you're in a Splunk world, go and have a look at that. It's a free app. Obviously, you need to have a Bampone subscription because you put the API key in. And if you live in another world that does similar things to Splunk or you'd like to see a dashboard like this, either build it yourself or put it out in the community, get someone to build it because this is it's kind of like my dream to see all of this data surfaced and actionable. And I imagine at the moment there's a bunch of people living in Splunk seeing how many people in their organization are in the IE menu 360 breach, but now they have that data right in front of them in the world that they live in. Uh, okay. Stephen says, next week, Troy will be sponsored by his local coffee shop <laughs> due to all the coffee mentions today. It's a little bit like the doorbell thing, though, isn't it? Uh, isn't it, Stephen? Like, you, you've actually got to be physically present, you know, for it to make any sense. So look, folks, I'm going to start to wrap it up there. We have today, tomorrow, and the next day, Australia's largest ever air show, about 800 metres that way. Uh, and we have bought some tickets to go down to the air show. Uh, with my with my parents, my father used to be an Air Force pilot, so for him, like this is a really big thing. It's like we have all of this here, and it's like jets and choppers and all sorts of amazing stuff. So we're going to go and spend most of the day watching the air show, getting out of the house while there's more tradies <laughs> in here, and hopefully coming back to a fairly finished place. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, I hope that's been useful. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens next week. I did briefly mention I will be at Cloudflare Connect in Sydney Next week, I'm going to be doing the closing keynote on Thursday. So if you're around Sydney, please come along to Cloudflare Connect. I think it's going to be an awesome event, and I may see you there. Cheers, folks.